This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a break from the brain and focus on the face. So a central, if in fact not the central question in modern biology is to understand the genotype to phenotype connection. In other words, how does information encoded by the genome reveals itself through the developmental process to produce specific phenotypes? And the flip side to this question is to understand how variation between the genome during evolution produces phenotypic variation either between species or between individuals within the same species, and how, uh, how come uh, such common genetic variants can determine disease susceptibility uh, in complex human diseases. I'm sure most of you heard by now that most complex disease and trade-associated variants map to the non-coding parts of the genome. So not to to our genes per se, the protein-coding parts of the genome, but to the vast non-coding space that comprises uh, over 98% of of the genome. Moreover, evidence begins to emerge that these variants are enriched within cis-regulatory elements, and especially within a specific class of regulatory elements called enhancers. So these are modular genetic sequences that can activate gene expression at large distances and are typically specialized to activate gene expression in a specific tissue context. And the idea here is that these genetic variants or single nucleotide polymorphisms within enhancers can produce either weak or strong enhancer alleles which in turn can lead to quantitative differences in gene expression and influence uh, downstream traits. We learned from the EvoDevo community working on, on model organisms that studying this regulatory landscape evolution of closely related species can be an extremely powerful tool in uncovering genotype to phenotype connections. So, for example, elegant work from from Sean Carroll, David Kingsley, and others unequivocally demonstrated that change in enhancer sequence can dictate change in phenotypes such as wing patterning in Drosophila or skeletal changes in stickleback fish. And we were very interested in extending this type of evodivo thinking into humans and, and other primates. But, of course, as it's already been mentioned some of the key developmentally and evolutionary uh, important cell types cannot be studied directly in embryonic context from humans and other grape apes for, for, obvious, ethical reason, uh, for obvious ethical reasons. But it has already been introduced that now with induced pluripotent stem cell models, we can study cellular and molecular mechanisms underlying phenotypic divergence in higher primates. And a few years back, we referred to this general strategy as cellular anthropology. So one of the phenotypes that we are uh, most interested uh, in is, is human face and also human craniofacial development. We know that craniofacial variation both within and between species is largely genetically encoded. 
So we have unique facial features that are distinct from, from those of uh, other grape apes, but also there is a lot of individual variation in facial form, both within the humans, but also in our close uh, evolutionary relatives. So the question is, what are the cellular origins of facial variation? Well, it turns out that most of our face and head is derived from the single cell type called cranial neural crest cells. These are very unique cells that, that form early in the stations at three to five weeks. They're induced in dorsal anterior part of the neural tube, and then they migrate long distances. And their destination, they can differentiate to a large variety of cell types, including bone, cartilage, connective tissue, cranial nerve, and, and pigment cells. And as a result, in fact, most of the craniofacial complex is derived from the neural crest. Moreover, seminal work from Nicole Ledron-Ren and, and, and others showed uh, through cross-species transplantation experiments in avian embryos that these cells autonomously carry much of the information on species-specific facial morphology. So these cells are important, but how can we access them uh, from humans and, and other primates? Uh, as you already pro probably realize, this, this is a tricky proposition. So this is a transient embryonic cell types forming in three to five weeks of gestation. We cannot access them directly from the embryo, but thanks to the IPS and uh, ES technologies, we can derive them in vitro. And indeed, that's what my lab has, has done over the last several years, established protocols to obtain uh, in vitro cells with bona fide characteristics of the cranial neural crest cells. More recently, Sarah Prescott, a, a former graduate student in the lab working in collaboration with Rusty Gage, uh, extended this model to, to a chimpanzee. And here really were a few key features were to, to reduce heterogeneity of the population and properly stage human and, and uh, chimp cells. Because unless uh, you do that, the developmental differences are going to dominate over species differences. And moreover, we also went to great lengths to ensure that not only molecular uh, signatures, but also cellular properties of these cells uh, represent bona fide neural crest cells. So, for example, we can transplant these cells to the chick embryo neural tube, and they will engraft, migrate, and, and assume correct positional identities in the embryo. And they also retain this very broad differentiation potential characteristic of the crest. So now with this model uh, in hand, we used epigenomic strategy to systematically annotate regulatory elements. So just to give you uh, an idea for those of you who are not uh, so familiar with epigenomics, um, when active, enhancers share certain common chromatin features. And when we can use technology like ChIP-seq or ATAC-seq to map these features genome-wide in, in an unbiased manner in a specific cell type. Uh, and then we can correlate these changes in epigenomic patterns uh, with changes in gene expression uh, uh, determined by, by RNA-seq. So to do this, uh, Sarah took um, neural crest cells, in vitro derived neural crest cells from, from uh, multiple independent uh, chimp and human individuals and performed mapping of transcription factors and general co-activators uh, analysis of hypersensitivity by ataxic and also analyze certain ke uh, chemical tags or histone modifications that are present on nucleosomes uh, when regulatory elements are active. 
And based on the simple chromatin signatures, she was able to map enhancers that are active in the neural crest cells and also distinguish them from other classes of regulatory elements such as promoters and then ultimately link to, the, to, to differences in gene expression. One thing I really need to mention is that not only we can map these regulatory elements, but that quantitative comparisons of chromatin signatures at these elements can be used to infer differences in their activity. So it's not only where these enhancers are, but we can compare uh, quantitatively these this, uh, tags, chromatin signatures, to infer how different they are in their activity between the species. So this forms the basis of what I refer to as comparative epigenomics. And the idea here is, is simple, that we're comparing as the same cell type between two closely related species. So most of these epigenomic patterns that, that we recover should be invariant between the two species. But the idea is also that we will be able to see some differences, or quantitative differences in, in, in those chemical tags that mark active chromatin, which uh, will be indicative of the difference in, in regulatory activity, which then hopefully will also be able to link in, to differences in gene expression. So that's the idea, how does the actual data look like? Well, indeed, most of the epigenomic patterns are invariant between human and chimp. But we also see at a subset of sm smaller subset of regions, we see differences, as indicated here in this um, uh, chimp biased region or indicated here at this human biased enhancer region. So we can quantify then these differences across the whole genome and compare different individuals of the same species, so different humans or different chimps, and that variation is shown here in red, or we can compare between the species, between human and chimp. And as you can see, there's more variation between the species, uh, shown here in, in blue, uh, than, than within the species, and we'll refer to those falling outside as either human-biased or chimp-biased candidate enhancer regions. Importantly, we can uh, associate these regulatory changes with changes in gene expression. So in other words, genes near human-biased enhancers tend to be human-biased in expression, and those near chimp-biased enhancers are chimp-biased in expression. And that's, of course, important because it's gene expression difference that ultimately matters uh, for exerting phenotypic differences. Moreover, these are not just some random genes, but in fact, when we do ontology annotation for these biased genes, we see that they're associated with development and malformation of various craniofacial structures, uh, including those structures that are actually quite divergent between human and chimp. But now an important question to ask is where do these interspecies differences in enhancer signatures come from? Are they due to differences in the transregulatory environments of the human and, and chimp neural crest, so different in transcription factor networks, things like that? Or are they due to differences in enhancer sequence itself, so cis-regulatory changes? And to distinguish between these two possibilities, we designed the following assay. We synthesized a library of orthologous regions that were either human-biased chimp biased or invariant in our epigenomic data. 
And then we clone this library to a so-called self-transcribing enhancer reporter vector, uh, forming a basis of the Starseq assay described a few years back by Alex Stark's lab, and which relies on the ability of enhancer to activate its own expression at a distance and then drive its own expression and serve as its own barcode. And we took this library and introduced it to either chimp or human neural crest cells. From this, we learned two important things. First of all, bias in, in uh, uh, epigenomic signature translates into the bias in ability of these sequences to drive gene expression. In other words, what we predicted as human biased, which you should be seeing here, was human biased, and what we predicted as chimp biased was chimp bias in general in ability to drive uh, gene expression. And the second important conclusion was that direction of the bias was the same, whether we tested our library in the context of the human or of the human or chimp neural crest cells. And what this tells us is that the bias is encoded by the sequence of enhancers themselves rather than imposed by the differences in transregulatory environments. So if it's in the sequence and, and the transregulatory environments are more conserved, we can go as far as to the transregulatory environment of the mouse to gain some insight where, uh, when and where during development these enhancers may be active. And here I'm showing a couple of examples of this where we're looking at the human bias uh, enhancer and we're cloning autologous sequence from either human on ch uh, or chimp to the Luxy enhancer reporter vector and testing in the context of the mouse embryo. And why there is a shared expression in the olfactory placode, there's a human uh, associated uh, gain in multiple, uh, uh, in multiple domains within the head and face. And here is another example, again, a human bias enhancer. This one is more pan-neural crest. And again, you see the gain of activity uh, for the human sequence. And this one is actually quite blazing in, in, in the face, whereas the chimp, corresponding chimp sequence is not active. So this is interesting because it shows that we can systematically identify enhancers that change their regulatory activity uh, during recent human evolution, and we can even learn something about their spatial-temporal activity during development. But what this type of work will not tell us is whether these enhancers are actually responsible for driving variation in, in facial morphology. And while we can model some of these aspects of variation in the mouse, again, mouse is not an ideal system for studying human facial variation. So to try addressing these questions, uh, we thought about harnessing glorious normal range human facial variation, which, which you, can, you can see just looking around those, uh, this room, and our ability to non-invasively and quite precisely quantify it. And to do this, we teamed up with a group of anthropologists, uh, engineers, and, and uh, human geneticists uh, who developed a very novel methodology for unbiased facial phenotyping. And I just want to uh, mention at least three names, Peter Klaas, Mark Shriver, and Seth Weinberg. And what, what Peter has done is develop this very precise method to quantify facial shape, uh, which relies on 3D facial scans uh, that are then uh, mirror imaged uh, and then remapped into the mesh, then mens, or dense, dense mesh uh, of 10,000 coordinates. 
So essentially, in other words, each phase is translated into 10,000 coordinates, then averaged to remove deviations from bilateral symmetry, and then aligned across many, many participants in the study to establish correspondence of these 10,000 coordinates. And this allows for, for unbiased facial phenotyping and quantifying shape variation over global to local facial segments, starting from very global effects on, on, on facial variation to effects on very specific aspects of the facial shape, as highlighted here in yellow. And this type of analysis has been done on many, many participants, uh, over 2,000 participants and replicated uh, on an independent cohort of another 2,000 participants. And uh, having genotype information for, uh, for this participant allowed us to perform genome-wide association studies to identify candidate variants that may be associated with different aspects of facial variation. While I don't have time to go into the details of, of that study, I just want to show you one example that I think is, is really quite interesting. So there is an example of, of one subgenetic variant, the lead SNP on chromosome 2, that will link to variation in lower face morphology, uh, particularly the jaw shape. So when we look at uh, underneath this SNP at our epigenomic data, we see that it falls smack in the middle of an active neural crest enhancer. But what is really interesting about it is that an, the same enhancer is actually chimp-biased in activity. Moreover, the very same SNP was associated by another group earlier this year with susceptibility to non-syndromic cleft lip and palate in Europeans, as shown here. So we're really quite ex excited by examples like that because what this suggests that perhaps overlapping set of regulatory elements can influence variation at multiple levels, both between the species, within the species, and then when combined uh, with, uh, with either environmental perturbation or other variants uh, influencing disease susceptibility in common disease like cleft lip palate. So we're starting to think that it's going to be about the quantitative differences and about the combinatorial effect which really will ultimately separate those three scenarios, the differences between within species and disease states. And with this thought, I want to leave you and thank uh, people involved, um, in particular Sarah Prescott, uh, who now moved on to Harvard as, as a postdoc, was an extremely talented and open-minded graduate student who took on and started all the evolutionary projects in, in my lab. I want to acknowledge Tomek for uh, most of the genomic data analysis that I've shown you today and, and really thinking about how we can quantitatively compare human and chimp uh, epigenomic data. Uh, I'm also grateful to, to Rusty and Carol Marchetto, about whom you already heard today, uh, for really sharing with us chimp iPS cells very early in the game. Uh, our mouse genetics collaborator, Licia Celeri, uh, and also a human phenotyping and GWAS team, Peter Klaas, Seth Weinberg, and Mark Shriver. Uh, thank you very much. So I thought I'd take the director's prerogative and uh, spend the first five, ten minutes uh, going back in time over uh, some of the events that led to the work I'm going to present, and also because some of the people that are here in the audience were involved in some of this, these early phenomena. So first, let's step back and go to the 1950s, 
when the work of many people have clearly shown that uh, we shared a common ancestor with the great apes and most likely the chimpanzee, but there was considered to be this great gulf that needed to be resolved. But then Sarich and Wilson in the 60s by immunochemical techniques and Goodman, Russ Doolittle here in the audience and others showed by that most of the proteins were identical. Sequences are essentially identical. And Mary Claire King in her thesis work uh, was asked to find something different and she couldn't find much at all. And so they wrote this famous paper that said that maybe the genes are nearly identical and the proteins are identical, they just express differently. And this theory actually held, believe it or not, for almost 20 years, although part of it is definitely true, uh, until uh, Maynard Olson, who's also here in the audience, uh, suggested in 1999 that gene loss may be important. That is, getting rid of a gene might be just as interesting as having more of a gene or changing a gene or its expression. And by some coincidence, actually, uh, that very year, at the end of that year, just before that, uh, we reported the first genomic and biochemical difference between humans and great apes, the first known at the time, and it was due to gene loss, CMH. I'll come back to what CMH is. So let's define some of the words here. Hominin. Hominins are uh, human ancestors and are extinct evolution relatives, that is, Neanderthals. Example, hominids are human ancestors and are living and extinct evolutionary relatives, which includes the great apes. So we go back to a diagram here. There are the hominids, and there are the hominins, and we are one of a group of hominins. So if we go back into detailed background, oh, before any of the aficionados get upset, uh, the branching relationships here only re do not reflect timing. The branch length does not. It's just relationships. And there is one time point that does matter, and that's the one shown down there, 0.5 million years. Right here is 0.5 million years, the junction where the common ancestor of Neanderthals, Denisovans, and humans. So let's look at what happened going up to there. And this is a very complex slide, but includes all the known information except for the last couple of years from Wood and Boyle, uh, talking about all the different uh, hominins that existed in Africa until about 2 million years ago when the genus Homo emerged and not only stayed behind in Africa and spread across Africa, but spread all across the old world uh, and eventually uh, gave rise to us again in Africa. And Homo, of course, had a wanderlust and wandered all over the old world, never crossed the water where he couldn't see the other side, as far as we know. But otherwise, was, you've heard of Peking man, Java man, and so on. And then this probably went on for about two million years, and finally our own species, again the numbers have changed, they change every, every month now because of new data coming in, but the general pattern is true, emerged in Africa and spread all across the world, essentially replacing all the other species, including the species in Africa with limited interbreeding. So we had found a pseudogenization, a gene deletion in humans, and uh, this has to do with sialic acid, another word in my title. So what's the sialic acid? Uh, all cells in nature, without exception, are coated with a dense array of glycans or sugar chains. Here's a classic slide from Nobel laureate uh, George Pallade in the early days of EM, where he already saw this stuff sitting on the surface. But if you look over here in a mammalian cell, you can see this huge thick layer of sugars, 
Same in the bacterium, and even many viruses are coated with sugars. So this massive layer of glycans, which is sort of the dark matter of the biological universe that most people don't study or even acknowledge their existence in many... You didn't see it in any of the slides in the first session. Um, so these, on the outermost tip of vertebrate glycans are these sugars called sialic acids, which just sit out of the tip. And there's a lot of them. They can be millions and tens and even hundreds of millions of copies per cell. A recent calculation said that a lymphocyte had a density of 100 millimolar on the surface. That's right, millimolar. That's a lot. And so obviously they must have a lot of biological roles. And the story that we have been pursuing is the, uh, the fact that there are many kinds of sialic acids. And the two most common ones are called NU5AC and NU5GC. <laughs> yes, we have some rock and rollers in my group. <laughs> and GC is derived from AC by adding one oxygen atom by this enzyme called CMH. And so here's that single oxygen atom. You may think that's trivial, but that's a single oxygen atom added to 100 millimolar concentration of something on the cell surface, so that's a big effect. Uh, and what we basically found was that GC was missing in humans due to a mutation in CMH. Looking further into this with Toshi Hayakawa, Yoko Sata, and uh, Yuki Takahata, we found, Pascal and I found, that there was this allo-mediated inactivation that occurred uh, in this manner, taking out this critical exon that was fixed in all humans. All of you have this mutation, homozygous. And this exercise was, was also useful because this allowed timing by several different methods, none of which are perfect, but I won't go into the details of the timing, but all of them gave a time of about 2.5 to 3.5 million years where the mutation first occurred. So we went further then uh, and collaborated with both Swante Pabo and Meeb Leakey back at that time, looking at fossil samples and the, and the sort of side fraction from the DNA extraction, we could find only AC and Neanderthal fossils. So we thought that maybe there was no Neanderthal sequence at the time, uh, also were missing CMH. But then the question came up, uh, how, how did this mutation get fixed? And uh, Pascal came up with a very interesting idea. After all, when you get a mutation, if there's this mutation is due to, let's say, a pathogen that is binding GC, leaving some people with GC negative, you'd expect a kind of a polymorphism like you see in sickle cell disease. How did it get fixed? By the time we had knockout mice with the same mutation, which have a lot of phenotypes, by the way, that I'm not going to go into human-like phenotypes. And so we could do this experiment that he suggested, which was to show that uh, while the rare male that is GC negative, uh, and um, if there's a large number of males that are GC positive, the GC positive sperm are killed by antibodies produced by the female. In fact, human serum will kill chimpanzee sperm also. And so St Steve Springer actually did a calculation s saying that within 30 to 650 generations, this could actually generate two lineages. And so we hazard a guess that this might be the origin of genus Homo. And uh, unfortunately, sialic acids and DNA do not survive in African fossils. The samples that Meeb Leakey gave us had no sialic acids in them. But very recently, this is hot off the press, we found that these N-glycolyl groups, these GC groups, actually survive in a, in a byproduct called chondroitin sulfate in ancient fossils. 
And in fact, Meave sent us some samples from a four million year old Bobbitt fossil and we could find GCCS there. Uh, so we now wonder whether we can go back to this theory and we try to improve our techniques and convince people to share with us small amounts of the hominin samples. But if you can do that, we could end up with N-glycolus CSF positive and N-glycolus CSF negative fossils. And this branch would then try to break up this big bush that everybody's studying right now and get some lineage out of it. Okay, what's a SIGLEC? A SIGLEC is a molecule, a family of molecules that we discovered and named some years ago, which through this red domain in the amino terminal end, this is the cell membrane, binds sialic acid. It had, they have many functions, but one of their major functions is this subgroup called CD33-related SIGLECs. What they basically do is see sialic acid as self-associated molecular patterns. You hear about danger-associated and pathogen-associated molecular patterns. Well, why don't your cells attack you? One of the reasons is they see sialic acid and say halt. So the immune cell is stopped by that. So you can think of it as breaks on immune cells. And so these molecule patterns are actually widespread. Uh, Pascal suggests I showed this picture because the picture shows, speaks a thousand words. Here's a fresh blood smear that's glycophorin on the surface covered with sialic acid, red blood cells. Here's a white blood cell, a neutrophil, and you can see all the SIGLEC9 is clustered. The red cells are holding on to the neutrophil saying, wait there, buddy, you're not ready to fight yet. And so, of course, pathogens have taken advantage of this, and it turns out that no pathogen can make GC. So however we lost GC, we threw away our best self-signal. And so now we have these bugs of wolves and sheep's clothing that are invading us. And so then we found a second mutation affecting sialic acid biology in SIGLEC12. And here we had fixed genomic changes, polymorphic genomic changes, and major expression changes as well, three of the major categories. But we're really quite frustrated because without uh, the level of molecular biology we could do, we couldn't go much further. But fortunately, uh, many people started getting interested in the chimpanzee genome. This is an article I wrote, uh, and the baby Papo from is photographed by Pascal Gagnon and Sarah Varki by Hudson Freeze. I did get permission from Sarah Varki. And so Maynard got excited about this, and actually 9-11 has something to do with it. That's a story for another time. And white papers are submitted. We actually had the first ever CARTA symposium just before the chimpanzee genome came out. <coughs> That's Sarah again, again with her permission. And so now we had the sequence of chimpanzee genome, and fast forward now uh, 10, 10, 12 years, and we could look at all these SIGLECs, and the long and the short of it is in the circle of life that Pascal drew uh, for me. Uh, <clears throat> we find roles of SIGLEX, mutations of SIGLEX, involving many, many different uh, parts of the circle of life, from cells ranging from sperm to gut epithelia to TNB cells to even pancreatic islets and ROS production and so on. So um, the problem was that we had just one or two genomes of each of the apes. And there's always this worry, is it just genome quality? Is it just chance? Is it just ascertainment bias? Are we like the proverbial drunk looking under the lamppost for the keys? Fortunately, at that time, Evan Eichler and Thomas Marcus Bonnet came up with 
great ape genetic diversity and population history actually involving many people in Carter as well. So we had access to ape genomes. So now we could get a reasonable number of ape genomes, not as many as humans, of course, but still something to work with. We did that. It turned out that, in fact, even some of the polymorphisms we thought were fixed in apes were not fixed. They're, they're polymorphic. They're not fixed. So, in fact, it seems that apes don't have many mutations. So this finding over here, and some of these, of course, are expression pattern changes, is, uh, is significant. And so this, so we've shown you multiple genomic events altering hominin salic sialic acid biology. And now I'll come to the actual topic of the, of the, about the common ancestor of humans and Neanderthals. These mutations are all found in African populations, so they predated the common origin of modern humans. Actually, a paper just online with, uh, including Tony Capra, I think, is here. Uh, shows that uh, genes involved in sialic acid biology do not harbor s at least strong signatures of recent positive selection. So they are of more ancient origin. Um, and so Stefan and Kai from uh, Leipzig showed a new method and showed that, in fact, there's no evidence of strong selection on these genes after the divergence of humans and Neanderthal common ancestors. So now we can uh, zoom in here and start looking at the wonderful data that Svante Pabo and so many others have generated on Neanderthal and Denisovan genomes. And uh, looking at these sequences, we find that we can find essentially all of these mutations, uh, almost all of them, although obviously the population sizes here are very small, so we, can't, we don't know whether they're fixed or not. But we can find mutations cyclic 3, 12, 14, 16, 13, 17, cyclic 12, CMH. There's a few other genes uh, that we're looking at. And as for these expression pattern changes, we've looked at comparisons with chimps and bonobos and so on, but uh, we don't have all the possible comparisons. Uh, but something seems to be going on where a large number of genes seem to have been t turned on in the human lineage in many tissues. So uh, what we believe is that this, this cluster of genes on chromosome 19 has undergone some changes, clearly undergone a lot of genomic changes, and perhaps secondarily, uh, perhaps affecting uh, epigenetics and transcription and so on, also produce a lot of ectopic expression, we think, of siglex in various other tissues. But there's a lot more work to be done before we can say much about that. Uh, but in terms of what we think happened, you can never be sure in evolution. You just make up stories and see if they fit. It's more, it's more like a murder mystery and actually a patient in coma in an emergency room, the kind of thing I'm more used to doing, actually. Uh, but we think that the CMH mutation really occurred two to three million years ago, and we have some con other connections to the genus Homo that we haven't published yet. Uh, perhaps there was some incident uh, or incidents involving loss of CMH and selection of the kind that we suggested, and perhaps pathogens. And, and it turns out that the binding pockets of the siglex, I'm not showing you the data, have evolved very rapidly as well. So maybe there was selection there. So uh, conclusions. Multiple genomic events altering hominin, sialic acid, and siglic biology, and there's a few other sialic acid changes I've not mentioned, predate the common ancestor of humans and Neanderthals. Actually, I don't know of any other system where there have been so many changes. 
There are likely multiple selection forces affecting innate immunity and host pathogen interactions. And perhaps, this is the interesting part, the secondary consequence has been human-specific expression of CD33 siglex in unusual cell types and tissues, including brain microglia, mucosal surfaces, losses from some surfaces, the reproductive system, amnion, placenta, etc. So I'll leave it there uh, and uh, say that we have a lot of work to do and uh, encourage others interested in this area to join us in this pursuit. Thank you. My lab is um, primarily interested in, in um, understanding some of the molecular and cellular basis for the development of the cortex. But um, unlike some of the previous speakers, we're um, focusing on, on the development of neuronal connectivity and, and how circuits assemble, basically, in the developing brain. And so, you know, I'm going to move fast on the introduction because I think you've heard a lot uh, about um, the general interest of understanding what makes us human, and in particular, what makes our brain human-specific. Another way to phrase that question, as you, as you heard before, is to ask what happened to our genome since we diverged from our common ancestor um, uh, more than 7, 10 million years. There's actually debate about that, that exact uh, time for divergence um, from our common ancestor. So, to the first question, what makes our brain uh, human-specific? You have heard a lot today about the possibility that um, what makes our brain different from uh, our most uh, common living relatives like chimps and bonobos or to um, other uh, higher mammals would be brain size, or at least the size of the cortex uh, relative to, to the rest of the brain. I would argue that despite the fact that that's the question that most people are interested in, it cannot be the entire uh, answer for a simple reason, which is that if you look at um, brain size expansion, including increases in, in neocortical size, many mammals have succeeded at this without any real gain in cognitive abilities. Right? In fact, um, um, brain size is best correlated to body size, not to cognitive abilities. Right? So, so brain size and neocortex expansion are, were probably an important step during evolution, and it, it happened many times during mammalian evolution, but it can't be the only explanation for what makes our brain human-specific, at least in emergence of cognitive abilities. So, you know, many uh, open uh, remaining possibilities. Neuronal composition, right? The, the type of neurons that, that are produced that Rick and, and others have talked about earlier. Circuit connectivity, the total number of synapses made um, uh, between neurons um, are things that will influence circuit function and, and probably cognitive abilities. Something that very few people have, have talked about, non-neuronal cells, astrocytes, microglia. Those could, uh, there's actually some very recent evidence suggesting that uh, differences in composition or total number of non-neuronal cells might, might be different between human and, and non-human primates. So today I'm going to try to convince you that we have evidence, probably the first evidence, suggesting that um, a specific gene duplication event um, has um, pretty significantly changed both the number of synapses made between neurons and we think actually affects circuit connectivity and circuit function. So how did we get interested in this question? We got interested in this question based on the work of several groups, including uh, beautiful wor work from um, Evan Eichler that you'll hear uh, about just after me, so I'm not going to bore you with details about what Evan did. But back in early 2000s, uh, work from Jim Sikela and then refined and, and, and uh, expanded by Evan, 
identified um, gene duplication events that are specific to the human lineage. Gene duplications, gene, new gene copies that are not present in any other non-human primates or in any other mammal. So, so essentially, what um, Evan has, um, has uh, shown uh, shown here on, on, the, on this on this graph. Um, so what Evan has shown is that um, in humans, you have a, a whole uh, list of genes, about 30 genes, that have extra copies, essentially. So those copies um, are, are specific to humans. They're not found in, in non-human primates. And um, unfortunately, or fortunately for us, most of those genes have completely unknown function. That's not entirely true. There is one gene in that list, SMN1, which is the gene that's mutated in spinomuscular atrophy. It turns out that Humans and humans only have an extra copy of this, and it's it's actually a absolutely fascinating work that's been done on this. Um, there's a drug treatment that just emerged uh, very recently, actually taking advantage of the second copy, the human-specific copy of SMN1. If you're interested, I can tell you more about. But for the vast majority, all the other genes have largely unknown function, and so. Um, except that around the time when this this uh, first work was published, there was one uh, gene in that list. SRGAP2 listed here, um, that we were probably the only lab working on, on this gene at that time, and, and we had some uh, interesting uh, data suggesting that this gene was actually uh, import, playing important functions um, during brain development, at least the ancestral copy of this gene. But when uh, Jim Sikela and, and Evan Ackler published these results, we were struck by the fact that there are human-specific copies of this gene, and so we... Um, we embarked on, on trying to characterize what those um, human-specific duplications of SRGAP2 do. So as a paradigm, basically, many questions arise from, uh, from this observation that, that, that there, there are human-specific gene duplicates for those. Uh, the first one is, which are, of those genes are expressed in, in, in the human brain? Uh, second question is, what is the function of the ancestral copy of these genes? As I mentioned, most of those genes have completely unknown function during brain development, so we had to start with this. And the third uh, question that's truly interesting is, is the function of the human-specific paralogs related to the function of the ancestral copy, or are those new copies basically um, acquiring some completely independent functions, some completely new functions, independent of the function of the ancestral copy? Right? Both scenarios could be true. So I'm going to summarize here, essentially, uh, about uh, 11 years of work from, from my lab, from multiple people in my lab, and then during the rest of the talk, I'm going to unpack and, and tell you a bit more about um, how we got to, to those conclusions. So essentially, SRGAP2A is an adapter protein containing three functional domains, this F-bar domain, which is essentially a homodimerization motif, a central domain called the RAC-GAP domain. It's a, it's a domain that inactivates a small GPAase uh, called RAC1, and an SH3 domain that's essentially a protein-protein interaction motif. So... All mammals, uh, from rodents to non-human primates and humans, have uh, uh, this gene. It's expressed. It's highly expressed in the brain. It's expressed largely uh, in uh, only in neurons, and as I'll show you later on, it's it's actually very unreached at synapses. But it turns out that about two to four million years ago, uh, two gene duplication events, at least. Um, uh, uh, made um, uh, uh, this new copy that's human-specific emerge um, that we had to call SRGAP2C. And Evan will probably tell you a bit more about that. And so this um, coding sequence is truncated, actually. It doesn't express the full-length protein. It, it's truncated. It expresses 90% uh, of this F-bar domain, which remains able to bind to the ancestral copy and largely inhibit its function. Okay? So 
its main function, so it turns out that we get essentially the same phenotype when we inactivate SRGAP2A or when we induce the expression of this gene. Okay? And, and the phenotypes we get are delayed excitatory and, and inhibitory synaptic maturation, this phenomenon called neoteny, um, which is essentially defined by retention of immature features for longer periods of time uh, during development. <coughs> we get increased density of both excitatory and inhibitory synapses. And finally, um, we, we get increased cortical, connect, cortical connectivity. This is largely unpublished. I, I won't, uh, have, probably won't have time to tell you much about this. So how did we reach these conclusions? So the first thing that we did um, a long time ago, um, in 2009, we published the expression pattern for SRGAP2, and this very simple uh, observation that the, the protein in, in mouse uh, cortex is expressed actually peaks at P1, but is expressed largely at postnatal time, when, uh, at, between, during the first two weeks of postnatal life, when the animals are basically um, forming a lot of synapses. And so when uh, this very talented postdoc, Cécile Charrier, um, uh, joined the lab, she discovered that, in fact, SRGAP2 protein is very enriched at synapses. This is high-resolution images of individual synapses in mouse neurons. And I hope you can appreciate the fact that, essentially, there's very little SRGAP2 in small synapses and lots of SRGAP2 protein in, in uh, large synapses. Those synapses here are visualized. Those excitatory synapses are visualized by this protein, HOMA1, um, and it turns out that at that time we didn't know, but in fact those two proteins functionally interact. So, um, so what is SRGAP2 function in, uh, in, in synaptic development? <clears throat> so neurons are absolutely amazing cells, if you think about it. Right? Those cells are gigantic. Um, a fibroblast that people have talked about before would be the size of this cell body here. Right? So they're gigantic cells. And um, in a, a graduate student in the lab, Dan Yaskoner, has um, developed some, some new methodology to actually, um, at single cell resolution in vivo, uh, visualize the presence and the topography of all synapses, excitatory and inhibitory synapses, made into a single neuron. Okay? And so this allows us to, to understand both, to have very quantitative um, uh, ideas of where synapses are localized in neurons, how many they form, and, and, you know, for a typical neuron like this, this, neuron, this layer 2-3 pyramidal neurons in a mouse forms somewhere between four and uh, 6,000 excitatory synapses and somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 inhibitory synapses, right? So staggering numbers for just a single cell, right? And so if you zoom up on, on those um, green dots that you see here, those are individual spines, dendritic spines. I'm going to talk a lot about those um, those in the rest of the talk, those protrusions, those uh, micron, this is a, the scale is a one micron here. Um, so those, they're tiny protrusions. They essentially constitute um, individual synapses. If you look at an EM picture of a single uh, spine like this, these protrusions, this is the site, basically a single spine constitutes a single synapse. It's the postsynaptic receiving end, basically, of a synapse. So this is an axon with those neurotransmitter field vesicles here that release neurotransmitter in the synaptic cleft that then uh, activate uh, postsynaptic receptors here. So essentially, those synapses are the basis for neural communications, right? And, and 
um, decades of work by you know, hundreds of labs have identified um, essentially a zoo of proteins, hundreds of proteins that are localized pre and postsynaptically here, and in dendritic spines. Um, those proteins, the main job of those proteins, uh, including these Homo shank interacting proteins I'm going to tell you in a second, is to basically create a very complex scaffold to anchor and stabilize the neurotransmitter receptors here that sense neurotra uh, neurotransmitter release here. And so, um, we discovered that SRGAP2 look, uh, is, is actually directly interacting with Homer here. Um, and, and in fact, I'll show you uh, later on, SRGAP2 seems to control the, the, the scaffolding properties of, of those proteins and, and controls the rate of accumulation of those um, neurotransmitter receptors, such as AMPA receptors during development. So how did we discover this? Um, Takeyuki said um, the first postdoc who was involved in this project started by making a knockout for SRGAP2A for the ancestral copy in mice. So um, we, we, we made this knockout in order to ask what happens when we delete this gene. And the main thing that happens when you delete this gene is essentially that um, if you look at those spines, the size of the spines, I forgot to mention, is proportional to how mature it is, how many postsynaptic receptors um, have accumulated there. If you look at a, uh, an animal three weeks after birth, a wild-type animal, those, those spines are already mature. So they have mature uh, synapses. Uh, there's you know, a lot of data uh, that, that has shown this. But then if you look at the um, uh, heterozygous, so if you delete one copy or two copies of the gene, you have um, a significantly sm a smaller spines at this juvenile time point. They have longer necks, so the neck that connects this spine head to, to, the, to the dendrites is longer. And, and most interestingly, there's a pretty significant increase in density of those spines. But interestingly enough, those, this, um, this uh, size effect is transient. So if you look at uh, P65, about 40 days uh, later, um, those spines reach maturation. So it's just a delay in maturation. Those, those spines, when you inactivate SRGAP2, seems to be much slower at, at reaching uh, maturation. Instead of being mature at P21, they're mature at P45. But in the adult, basically, those spines remain uh, having a longer neck and, and um, sig very significantly higher numbers, basically, very higher, um, significantly higher density. So what happens if we humanize mouse neurons for SRGAP2C? Right? I briefly mentioned before that our model based on, on uh, studies we published before was that the truncated version, the human-specific version of this gene, would bind to and inhibit the function of the ancestral copy. Right? So the prediction would be that if we express SRGAP2C in a mouse neuron that expresses uh, SRGAP2A, we would get phenotype that looked exactly like this. Right? And that's exactly what we found. Essentially, if you look at juvenile animals uh, control or SRGAP2C uh, humanized mouse neurons, you get this delayed maturation, right? But uh, they actually reach um, maturation at P65 instead of P P21, and they retain longer necks and, and higher spine density. So this was a very interesting result for us, right? This is because essentially we know that those three features, delayed maturation, uh, longer neck, which actually has very important function, and higher density are three phenotypes that are known to characterize human neurons compared to either mouse neurons or non-human primates. So beautiful work from Javier Felipe, Rafa Yuste, my colleague at, um, at Columbia, have shown that if you look at spine density, for example, between human or non-human primates, or if you look at spine density between human and mouse neurons, you essentially get 30 to 50 percent uh, more um, dense, uh, uh, higher density of spines, and those spines have longer necks. 
Um, and we also know that um, synaptic development in humans is, is profoundly neotenic, so basically very prolonged maturation, very delayed maturation. So this is interesting, right? Essentially, with um, just introducing a single gene that's human-specific in mouse neurons, we find a copy three major aspects of synaptic development, delayed maturation, higher density, and change in the morphology of those spines. But we have a problem, right? which is that we know that um, changing and increasing the density of excitatory synapses cannot be um, the only explanation, since uh, beautiful work from Javier Di Filipe and many others have shown that there is an amazing degree of conservation in the ratio between excitatory and inhibitory synapses in, in, in the cortex. Right? So we know that if, SRGAP2, if that's the only thing SRGAP2 was doing, increasing the number of excitatory synapses, we would have a problem. Right? We would have a major imbalance between excitation and inhibition, which is the land, a landmark of many neurodevelopmental disorders, for example, uh, such as autism or, or epilepsy. So, so either SRGAP2 was doing the job and was coordinating the maturation of both excitatory and inhibitory synapses, or some other genes, maybe some of the other gene duplications that I mentioned before, would do the job. It turns out that, it's, that nature has selected SRGAP2 probably for a reason. It's because SRGAP2 does exactly the same thing it does at excitatory synapses, at inhibitory synapses. So we discovered this because, uh, more recently because now we can actually visualize um, inhibitory synapses with amazing uh, uh, accuracy using, uh, for example, this um, Gefferin GFP. Gefferin is a protein that's exclusively localized at inhibitory synapses. And using single-cell technology, single-cell genetic labeling technology, um, we can not only visualize uh, with sub-micron precision uh, uh, spines, we can actually localize those inhibitory boutons, either the ones that are made on the dendrite shaft here, or even more rare boutons that are made directly on spine heads here. I can tell you more about this later on. And remarkably, we find that um, the, the same thing happens um, then for spines. If you look at inhibitory bouton, if you downregulate SRGAP2A, the ancestral copy, or if you introduce and humanize um, mouse neurons for SRGAP2C expression, you get um, higher density of inhibitory clusters. Those, those um, inhibitory synapses are much smaller early on, but ultimately reach maturation at P65. And there's a change in their actual localization. There's a striking increase in, in the, ones, the, the inhibitory synapses made onto the spine heads here. So increased density and, and delayed maturation. Right? It's pretty remarkable. In fact, if you plot the normalized increase in density for spines and for inhibitory synapses between control and humanized mouse neurons, we get remarkably similar effects, right? So the, the conclusion here is that nature has selected a gene duplication event that, um, of a gene that essentially controls the co-evolution of inhibitory and, and excitatory synapses. Right? This is really, um, I think, a very important take-home message here. So I will, um, I will finish here by taking a, a minute to, to um, recap everything I told you today. We've identified a, a gene, um, an, an SRGAP2A, which in its ancestral form 
uh, expressed in all mammals, controls uh, three very important uh, 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 aspects of synaptic development. It controls the density of excitatory inhibitory synapses through work I, I didn't have time to show you. We were actually able to do structure function analysis in vivo using gene replacement strategies. And so we can actually dissociate how SRGAP2 regulates spine density and inhibitory uh, synapse density from how it controls the maturation of excitatory or inhibitory synapses. And we discovered that um, human, the human-specific copy of this gene, which is this truncated form, uh, which remains able to bind to the ancestral copy and inhibits its function, uh, inhibits all three uh, major functions of SRGAP2. Right? So what are the future directions on, on, this, on, this, um, uh, on this project? So the, 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 there are three future directions. The first one is, what, what are the upstream regulators of, of, of this protein? I didn't tell you anything about how this gene is regulated and, and how the protein itself is regulated. We have some evidence of what's upstream of this. Um, uh, the second very important question is, what is where is this increased number of connections coming from, right? So, so this gene basically... Um, uh, the emergence of this human-specific copy increases the total number of synapses by 30 or 40 percent, which is very significant. Where are those connections coming from? Right? Um, we have some, some ideas about this already. And, and finally, probably the most important is what aspect of circuit function has been affected by, uh, by the emergence of this human-specific copy? That's, that's something that's much more difficult to approach. But believe it or not, we, we actually have some, some very uh, interesting uh, new results about this. So finally, the people who did the work. The work was largely carried out by a very talented postdoc in my life, Cécile Chaillet, who now has her own lab uh, in, at uh, École Normale Supérieure in Paris, in France. Um, but um, she was assisted by many people. And uh, many people in my lab, uh, at least those four people listed here, are involved in, in, in current aspect of the project. And finally, uh, I'm excited, since I moved to Colombia about four years ago, Colombia is creating a third campus, actually, um, in, uh, called Manhattanville. And very recently, we went from an architectural sketch to an actual building um, that will host uh, 55 labs, about 1,000 people. So um, the Zuckerman Mind Brain Behavior Institute, we're very excited to move into this building, hopefully this fall. Thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.